Our reading this morning is in two parts. First from chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 18 to 23. Uh, This is the account in Matthew of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. And now chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, on page 1000 in the small print, page 1521 in the large print. This is the account of that first Easter Sunday morning. Matthew 28, starting at verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, 
they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Amen. Good morning everyone, let's uh, pray together as we come to look at this passage. Father, you call us in this passage to be witnesses. You tell us to go. The Lord Jesus commanded it. Go and make disciples of all nations. And we admit that we find this difficult. We can be afraid. We can face apathy. And so we pray for your help, both to understand what this passage means for us, but also help to put it into practice in this week ahead. So please speak to us now through your spirit, we pray, and change our hearts. Amen. Just to say next Sunday when we gather for lunch, um, when we come in here to share some encouragements and then pray, there will be a DVD shown in the coffee hall for some of the smaller children. So do come as a whole family. Uh, The children are very welcome to be involved in the sharing and the prayer time, but if that becomes too much for them, then there is a a video and um, Izzy Howard's going to be looking after the children as well. So please do come as a whole family next Sunday. Uh, Well, growing up, I was um, into all things fish. I loved fishing, I loved the smell of fish, I loved eating fish. Whether it was um, the holidays we had in Pembrokeshire, uh, mackerel fishing off Dinner's Head, if you've ever been there, or down in Bradford and Avon near Bath where I grew up, my good friend Christopher Bradby and I used to take off with our bikes loaded up with fishing rods and fishing kit and chocolate bars that we'd stockpiled for a few weeks, and we'd cycle down the canal and we'd spend hours fishing, not really ever catching anything, but we enjoyed it. Or maybe down at the local brook where we caught rainbow trout and brown trout. I remember we had to ask for a permit from Colonel Bagnall Oakley. What a good name. And then we went down on his land and we, we sometimes caught trout. But normally we just built rope swings across the river. Or we jumped into the river. Or we tried to rescue ducklings that had fallen down a waterfall. And were generally just little boys. But I love fishing. And I love the smell of fish. And I remember a, um, a sort of van that used to come up onto our road, the Croft. And... It sold fish, and I used to love going out. And I declared once to my mum, when I grow up, I want to be a fishmonger. I didn't end up doing that. But interestingly, I have continued to fish, but not in the sense that I'm describing here. I'm continuing to fish in the sense of fishing for people. And actually, we're all fishermen, whether we like fish or fishing or the smell of fish or not. If you're a Christian, you're a fisherman. And uh, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be a fisherman this morning. I don't know if you recognize from that first reading from Matthew chapter 4, the task that the Lord Jesus 
was to give his disciples actually began much earlier than the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All the way back in Matthew chapter 4, the Lord Jesus calls his first disciples, and they were fishermen. And he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the point he wants to make is that fishermen fish, and equally followers of Jesus fish. As I'll quote later from a man called Richard Vermbrandt, he once said, every soul won for Christ must become, become a soul winner. Every soul won for Christ must become a soul winner. But what on earth does that mean? We then come from Matthew chapter 4 through to the end of Matthew's gospel and you get to chapter 28 and the two women, the two Marys are there at the tomb of Jesus on Easter, Easter morning. And the angels speak to the women and say of Jesus, he has risen and he's gone ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And then three verses later, the Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead, spoke directly to them himself and said, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee that they will see me. See, witnessing is all about ultimately, if you boil it down, it's all about helping people to see Jesus. That's what witnessing is. Witnessing is evangelism. That word evangelism comes from a Greek word, evangel, which literally means good news, gospel. So evangelism is gospeling people. It's good newsing people. It's sharing a good news. And who are we sharing the news about? Jesus. And so at its most simple, evangelism, witness, whatever you want to call it, ultimately it's about helping people to see who the Lord Jesus is. Now that's not ultimately our work, it's God's work. No one comes to the Father unless, the Son unless the Father draws him, Jesus says. It's God's sovereign work in drawing people to himself, opening blind eyes so that people can see him. But if you're a follower of Christ, your task and my task is to help people to see by, say, taking the words of Psalm 34 verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's our role. To offer people an opportunity to see Jesus for who he is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And of course, this matters, doesn't it? Jesus, when he calls people to follow him, isn't saying, come and join my football team or my chess team or my cookery club. He's saying, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers for men. Why? Because men and women's eternal destinies are at stake. People have been separated from God. And that matters. And it will matter for all of eternity. And so this a task of being uncomfortable witnesses really, really matters. We've become enslaved to the world and to the desires of our own heart. And actually, when we come back to Christ and become enslaved to him, it's the freest we'll ever be. It's life as it was intended to be lived. And so the task of witnessing is a huge task that we all carry. But do you notice how people who see who Jesus is are then called to help other people to see who Jesus is. So you come to the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, and Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. It's part of the reason there was that challenge last week about um, gospel partnership and raising money to train up the next generation of servants of Christ to take this good news out there to people who yet, yet don't see who Jesus is. And so the real challenge for us as a church is to ask ourselves the question, are we going to be a cruise ship for saved people or a lifeboat for lost people? And there's all the difference in the world. We mustn't be a cruise ship because that's comfortable. We must be a lifeboat and that is uncomfortable. But following Jesus was never meant to be comfortable. 
But then there's a big problem with the great commission that the Lord Jesus gives us. He says, go. And our big problem with that is we're fearful. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And our big problem with that is we're apathetic in our own heart and we're facing a world that's apathetic and doesn't really care. The big problem is he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And our problem with that is we easily make excuses. It's someone else's responsibility or I'll try next time. It will be a more obvious opportunity next time. And then our problem is Jesus says, surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And we forget that, don't we? All the time. And so Jesus gives us this wonderful commission, but we've turned, in a sense, the great commission into the great comfort. And it was never meant to be comfortable. And so what I want to do this morning is to take those four struggles we have with the great commission, our fear and our apathy and our excuses and our forgetting, and just see how the Lord Jesus can help us in each of those struggles. So let's look at the first one together. Jesus says, go, and often we say no, because we're fearful. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, I've been reading about this man, Richard Vernbrandt. I've been watching a DVD about his life. If you haven't heard of his name, you might have heard of Nikolai um, Unescu. That's his other name. Well, he was a pastor during the Second World War, um, during the sort of communist rule. He was very outspoken against the communist regime because he said communism and Christianity are not compatible. And so he started leading this underground church. And I was encouraged to read that he discovered that there were 366 commands in the word of God to not be afraid. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because it's one for every day of the year plus a leap year. And amazingly, because he knew that it was underground church, he knew that his Bible might be confiscated, he might end up in prison, he learnt off by heart 366 promises, do not be afraid. And he learnt them for each day of the year. So if his Bible wasn't with him and he was on his own, he would know the day of the year and he'd know the associated promise. He had 366 do not be afraid stored up in his mind and lodged within his heart. Well, wonderfully, he was, well, it's not wonderful, but he, the, the, what comes of it is wonderful. He was arrested on the 29th of February in 1948. And guess what day of the week, day it was? It was the 29th of February. As it were, the 366th, um, uh, phrase that he had learnt. And the verse for that day was Psalm 56 verse 3 that simply says this, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And on the very day he was arrested, he remembered that verse. And he spent 14 years in prison in seven different establishments. Three of them he was in solitary confinement, 12 feet underground, no windows, no light, didn't speak to another person for three years. I read of the fact that they put felt, the soldiers put felt on the bottom of their shoes to dampen the noise so there wasn't even noise as company for him. How did this man not fear and not go mad Amazingly, every single night for those three years, he composed in his mind a sermon and he preached it to himself. Every single day for three years. And he survived that. But he had 14 years in prison. And I could tell you many stories that I've been moved to tears with this week, seeing how this man was not fearful. And it cost him everything. But instead of giving you those sort of, come on, we can be like Richard Vernbrandt, encouragements, here's something where he reflected a bit more. He said this, Many people think they're believers and are not. He came to see that actually a lot of people believe in Jesus but don't really follow him when it gets tough. But then he went on to say, some people think they're atheists without even being so. Atheism collapsed 
when people approached their death. He was talking about a time when he was with lots and lots of prisoners who were suffering with tuberculosis and they were dying left, right and centre every day. And when it came to it, these atheists who didn't believe in the existence of God, when they stared death in the face, suddenly they weren't as consistent with their atheism as they'd lived the rest of their life. Friends, when we fear the world and what people might say when we seek to go and be obedient to Jesus, just remember Richard Vernbrandt, who was not fearful. And the reason he wasn't fearful, in part, was because rather than constantly feeling he had to justify his faith and defend his faith, he actually started challenging other people's false faith or unbelief. See, we've all got uh, what would be called a worldview. It's kind of a set of lenses through which we see the world. And our worldview helps us understand the world, make sense of the different experiences that we have. Here's the truth. We all have a worldview. But the real challenge is, can we live our worldview? And Richard Vermbrandt realized that lots of people whose worldview was atheism, there's no God, couldn't really live atheism when they faced death in the face. Death in the face. And so the challenge is maybe not so much to always feel we have to defend our faith, though there comes a time when we have to, but also to challenge other people to defend their lack of faith. And maybe we won't be so fearful if we did that. If you're involved in Lighthouse this year, you'll see some of these little white booklets. It's a little book I've written, which we're going to be using at Lighthouse and across the other lighthouses in the country. And I've called it Think, because this is what we want people to be doing, to think. And in here, I talk a little bit about worldviews. And this is something we can just give to visitors, to parents, to pick up and just think. Have you ever thought about what you believe? Because you believe something, but sometimes we believe things without really thinking about why we believe what we believe. And the purpose of this little booklet is to help people to think. So friends, when you're fearful and you hear Jesus speaking in your ear, go, say something, rather than always feeling you have to defend what you believe, just gently encourage other people to defend what they believe. And also I'd encourage you to take a risk. I wanted uh, Ollie Summers to share a little bit of testimony this morning, but he's not here, so he's given me something to read out. Ollie's, God's been working in Ollie's heart a lot recently. I've spent quite a bit of time with him, as others have. And this is just his story about taking a risk as a witness for Christ. This will warm your heart. Ollie's words. I've been praying and thinking about where there is in the local area to reach out to people on the streets and in the less fortunate areas. I was in Aylesbury recently with Natalie and Ariana, and we were driving around some of the estates and just thinking there must be something we can get involved with or a need. We were on our way home and we were in two minds as to whether or not to grab a McDonald's. In the end we went, we took a while to decide where to sit down, but eventually we did. There in front of me was a man and on his t-shirt it said, Jesus loves Aylesbury. I pointed it out to Natalie and she said, there's the answer, go and speak to him. And I said, no, I'm not going over, just going over. But I couldn't let it go. I started feeling really uncomfortable. But then I got up and I went over and I said, hey, I see your T-shirt. Jesus loves Aylesbury. What are you doing for outreach? And then the guy, of course, punched him in the face and that was the end of it. <laughs> no, that wasn't the end of it. Amazingly, God had prompted him to say something. He went, he said something, and this is what happened. The man invited him and said, every month we go onto the streets at 10 p.m. on the streets of Aylesbury and we talk to people and we pray with people. Alcoholics, drug addicts, homeless people, youths, Muslims and so on. 
So it turned out that a really uncomfortable situation, speaking to a so-called random person in the middle of McDonald's wearing a random T-shirt, opened up an opportunity that I'd been looking for. The next thing I need to do now is go out on the streets and see what God is doing, and I plan to do that in September. If I'm honest, I couldn't think of anything more uncomfortable. I haven't done anything like this before, and it's not normally something I'd be up for. But I'm here to serve Jesus. He showed me there was a need. I should be uncomfortable and go. Isn't that a cool story? That's just one of us who's been challenged to be uncomfortable and stuck his neck out and spoke to some random guy with a t-shirt on in McDonald's in Aylesbury and it's been the answer to what he's been looking for, an opportunity to witness. Isn't that amazing? So friends, when Jesus says go and everything in you just wants to say no, just think of Ollie, think of Richard Burnbrandt and go. We don't need to be as fearful as we perhaps think we might be. What about that problem of apathy? Sometimes we have apathy in our own hearts, but actually often we face apathy out there with people who just go, well, it's nice for you, but I just don't really care. Just three little things briefly to reflect on. Remember that the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we proclaim, is always heard in a context. The whole point of the church is it's meant to be visible. Not just a gathering here on Sunday, but a scattering of all of us, Monday to Saturday, so people can see the gospel in action. Wasn't it Jesus who said in John chapter 13, verse 35, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And how are other people going to know if you love one another unless they see it? The gospel in the church is meant to be visible. And that's part of the reason why last week the challenge was, are you and I prepared to be intentionally generous of spirit, of time, of money? To live provocatively different lives so people look in and go, you're different, why? And I came across a lovely, really endearing phrase this week that I've sort of laughed about and thought about much. Someone once said this, where you see Satan's fingerprints all over this world, go and leave God's footprint. Isn't that lovely? We live in a world and Satan's fingerprints are everywhere. Fear, dislocation, people who are not loved, who are isolated, who are hurting. And these fingerprints are everywhere and God calls us to be witnesses and to go and stamp the footprint of Jesus Christ over those fingerprints as we share Christ with a broken world. And to say to people, you may be dislocated and isolated, but there's a way of connecting with people. It's called a church and with the living God. You may feel unloved or unlovable, but there's a God who does love you and says you are lovable. You may feel shame. Where do I find forgiveness? Jesus Christ. Where you see Satan's fingerprints, go and stamp God's footprint. What a wonderful picture. And of course, we saw this in some of those illustrations I gave last week at the early church. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and that lovely verse, Acts 4.34 They shared their possessions and there was no person in need. What a provocative witness to our community and our world if within this community and all those associated with us, there's no need. Because those who have more than they need give away what they don't need. And those who don't have what they need can receive from those who do give. And then I quoted last week this Greek philosopher, Aristides, in the second century. And do you remember the illustration? He, he didn't believe in God. He didn't like Christians. But he said, but I couldn't help be moved by their witness. Why? Because these Christians welcomed people into their homes, strangers. And sometimes these Christians didn't even eat for two or three days. They fasted. Why? To give the visitor food. Do you remember that story? 
And this pagan philosopher went, wow, I don't get it, but what a witness. And then into the third century, Emperor Julian, again, he fiercely opposed Christians, but he famously wrote of Christians, they are benevolent to strangers, they support not only their own, but ours as well. First century, second century, third century, after the resurrection of Jesus, Christians were living provocative lives, and the gospel was heard in a context. You can't talk about Jesus being good news and then be grumpy. You can't talk about Jesus being good news and not be prepared to share everything you have. Because the gospel demands it, doesn't it? And sometimes, friends, this will mean organized care. It's interesting, you read 1 Timothy chapter 5 and there's a list, a pastoral care list of widows, women in need. And Paul encouraged Timothy to write this list so that nobody got missed. Sometimes this kind of care needs to be organized. But sometimes it's just more spontaneous, the kind of 2 Corinthians 8 stuff of last week, just being intentional, generous in spirit, generous in time, generous in use of our money. Yes, people are apathetic, but when they see a gospel community in action in a really provocative, lived out way, it helps the gospel to be heard. The gospel is not only just heard in a context, but it's also lived out in a community. That's why meals and hospitality are so important. Meals kind of bring us together, don't they? And they slow us down. What a wonderful witness to invite the stranger into our homes regularly and to love them like they're our own brother or sister. And then the third little thing to think about in terms of people's apathy. The gospel's heard in a context. The gospel's lived out in a community. But the third thing perhaps I want to encourage us to do is learn to ask good questions. This is the sort of thing about rather than always being on the defensive, explaining why we believe what we believe, just learn to ask a good question. Jesus was the master of this. Uh, If you want to think about this more, grab a book called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. He looks at how Jesus responds to so many of the questions he was asked in the gospel. And he reckons that most of the questions that Jesus was asked, he never answered. Or if he did, he answered with a question. Evangelism witness is about asking questions as much as it is about answering them. Let me give you four little examples of good questions you could perhaps ask. Here's an easy one. Uh, The invite. Say to someone, what did you get up to at the weekend? They'll tell you. If they're polite, they'll say to you, what did you get up to at the weekend? Then don't say, I went to church. What a cop-out. Because they just go, oh, right, well, you went to church, I went to a football match. You went to church, I cut the hedge and watched the Grand Prix. Don't say I went to church. Say something about what you did when you were at church. Say something about what you enjoyed about being part of a church community. Say something about what you were challenged by or loved. And then just simply ask a question. This isn't threatening. It's not aggressive. Just go, have you ever been to church? Or even, would you like to come to church? And you go, they're never going to come. But I'm looking around the room now and I know there are people we've baptized here who only came to this church because someone in this church just said, hey, do you want to come to church with me? Ask a question, and then they'll probably ask a question. I now go all the way to Marston, uh, this side of Oxford, to have my hair cut. Crazy, you might think, but because I went the first time. It was my birthday two years ago, and I just started talking to the guy who was cutting my hair, and he just showed a real interest. And I asked this question, what did you do at the weekend? And then I plucked up the courage, by God's grace, and I asked, he, he asked me, and I told him. And ever since, we have good conversations, and now every time I go, he gets the other hairdressers to talk. And I don't tell them what I think. I just ask them questions. 
And suddenly their world views are beginning to unravel. So I don't mind driving a bit further to get my hair cut. Because here's a group of people that God seems to be working in. And I get super excited about going. I just mustn't go too often or I'll end up no hair. <laughs> so the invitation. Just say, have you ever been to church? It's not threatening. It's not aggressive. It's just a question. The other one could be a stereotype. You might meet someone who just gets angry at suffering and brokenness. How can you believe in a God who dot, dot, dot? Well, that's spoken out of someone's pain. Maybe just gently say to someone in the question, is that the kind of God that you think I believe in? A God who doesn't care about our pain and suffering. That's not aggressive. It's just asking a question. They might say, I've never really thought about that before. And then you can say, well, let me tell you about the God I serve. He's not a God who's unfamiliar with suffering. He's a God who gets suffering. He's a God who's suffered in the most intense way himself. And you take someone's stereotype, almost a sweeping statement, I can't believe in a God of suffering because, and you just go, nor can I. I don't believe in a God who doesn't care either. Unlocks a conversation. If you're feeling a bit bolder, try a bit of cold contact. Next time you're at Waitrose, or you're at Tesco's, or wherever you shop, just engage in a normal conversation with the person at the checkout. So often I just notice no one even talks to the people. They just beep through all the food. You put your credit card in and you walk away. Just talk. Because people love it when you talk. And if you talk, then guess what? At the end of it, it's just really easy to say, oh, it's been great talking to you today. I hope you have a good day. And have in your pocket a booklet like this. And just say, hey, can I give you this booklet? You could even give him this booklet and say, a friend of mine wrote this booklet. It just challenges us to think about big questions of life. I'd love you to have a copy. I now carry one in my back pocket every time I go into Tame, and I give loads of them away. It's actually really easy, because it's not a threatening little thing. Just love you to think about big questions of life. And every time I've asked a shopkeeper, my knees have knocked together, and I thought, next time I'll do it, I feel afraid. And then I've just tried to say, God, you're with me, you're beside me, you died for me, what have I got to lose? And remarkably, about 99.9% of the people I've offered to give a little booklet or track to, they've said, hey, thanks really much, very much, I'll read that when I get home. Not always as difficult as we make it out to be. And then if you fancy a real challenge, here's a more provocative one. You will hear people who use the name Jesus Christ as blasphemy. They hit a hammer, finger with a hammer, they drop a glass in a restaurant, and out they blurt this name that they know nothing of. If it's appropriate, maybe you just say, do you know that man? And they go, what do you mean, which man? Oh, that man you just shouted about. Do you know that man? And you think that sounds crazy, but just say, do you know him? Because actually... He's changed my life, and he might actually be able to change yours. Okay, a bit more risky, a bit more provocative, but not really. He's the name above all names. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We shouldn't be ashamed. So friends, we're fearful. Jesus says, go. Just learn to unlock other people's worldviews. Remember Richard Vernbrandt, remember Ollie, just took a risk. We meet people's apathy. Just remember the gospel's heard in a context. The gospel is lived out. And if we just learn, learn to ask good questions, sometimes that just unlocks a conversation. We face the problem of excuses. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And sometimes if you're like me, you probably just say, hey, it's someone else's responsibility. Someone else who's just better than me at witnessing. Maybe I just say frequently, oh, I'll give one of these to the checkout lady next time I'm in Waitrose. I wonder whether we ought to just remember the words of Galatians chapter 5 verse 25, where Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. 
It's that sense of not just rushing into the day and almost trying to manufacture an opportunity and force a conversation, but more just say, Lord, what are you doing today and how can I be a part of it? Who do you want me to witness to? Uh, It might surprise you because I'm quite confident standing in the front talking. I'm actually really introverted. I hate being in big crowds of lots of people and I really hate small talk and, and sort of just working the crowd. It's not me. I can do it, but I don't enjoy it. But what I've started doing recently because I don't enjoy it is rather than just going to a big occasion and just trying to sort of talk to everyone, I just pray before I go, Lord, show me who you want me to talk to today. Who can I encourage? Who can I sit next to at a wedding where I don't know lots of people? Lord, who could I just have a chat with? I don't want to talk to everyone. I just want to talk to the right people. And I found just trying to pray and ask God to reveal those people. It's a sense, I think, in a way of trying to keep in step with the Spirit of God. And amazingly, he's been faithful. And he's just led me to a conversation with the right person at the right time. He spared me from all the small talk that I hate and given me some real talk that I love just through asking take a risk try and slow down enough to tune into what God's doing Lord what do you want me to do today who do you want me to speak to what do you want me to say and sometimes I think it's our busyness that means we're not really tuned into what God is doing we're just striving in our own strength rather than waiting for God to provide an opportunity and finally the fourth problem we have with the great commission we forget we forget who is with us isn't it wonderful that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel we're introduced to Emmanuel God with us and then right at the end of Matthew's gospel in the great commission we remember the words at the beginning go and make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and there it ends we forget the crucial bit and surely I am with you always when to the very end of the age and friends you will fear and you won't go if you forget that you'll face apathy and you won't speak out if you forget that you'll have your own excuses and won't say anything if you forget that but we must never forget that the Lord is with us just look at those words on the screen I am with you I am with you who's speaking there This isn't a friend giving you a suggestion, saying, hey, I'll stick by you. And then the second you open your mouth to speak of him, your friend's legged it because they're embarrassed. I am with you. The living God, the one who sent his son into the world. Jesus speaks and says, the one who died for you and rose again and smashed death to pieces. I am with you. What better friend? He says, I am with you. Because sometimes we doubt and go, God, it doesn't feel like you're here. It feels like I'm pretty alone. He says, no, I am with you when you can see it and feel it. And when you can't see it and you can't feel it, I am with you. I am. When you're at Tesco's and your knees are knocking together and you've got one of my little books and you want to give it to someone, I am with you. I am with you. I've not just gone ahead and prepared good works for you to do. I'm not just going to come behind you and pick up all the pieces when you muck up. I am with you. I'm there. Because if you're a follower of Christ, I live within you by my spirit. I'm with you. I am with you. And the you there is plural. It's not just talking about little you, little me. It's talking about you, us. I am with you, the church. And so when the call comes for us to be a provocative church that chooses to be uncomfortable in witness, Jesus Christ says, I am with you. And so to go back to where we started, what is witnessing all about? 
Witnessing is all about helping people to see who Jesus Christ is. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But if we keep looking to Jesus, what do we see? We see the cross of Jesus. And that melts and breaks our hearts because we remember how needy we once were before someone spoke to us. And we look at the person who we are fearful of speaking to and we say, Jesus loves this person more than I ever could. And Jesus died for me. So I will speak up. You look at the cross and it melts your heart. But then you look at the resurrection. Doesn't it encourage your heart? Because the one who commissions us to go is the one who beat death and is alive, who reigns in heaven, who has given you and he's given us his spirit. So yes, we're called to be uncomfortable witnesses, but we don't do it alone. And we don't do it in his strength. Which ultimately means we'll be all right. So I wonder how many people here are up for this this week. Let's take a risk. Let's be uncomfortable witnesses and let's see lives transformed by the name of Jesus. Amen.